Hello and welcome to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM with your hosts Jeremy and Kristen. This is our final episode of the season which we are recording on the traditional territory of the Tlaitlai Tanay. Today on the show we had Dr. Joe Shea who is a professor in the geography department and we talked to Joe about a whole lot of things. Uh, we started out talking about his new lab that he started, the Mosh Lab for Mountain Snow Hydrology. And then we shifted to talk a lot about his music and the secondary career I guess he has with the band Trundled and another band, The Ebbs. And on that note, on today's show, all of the music that we'll be playing comes from the album High Water, which is from Joe's band Trundled. And the album is being released in the next few weeks and you can find them on Bandcamp. Welcome to The Abstract. Uh, today on the show, we are talking to Dr. Joseph Shea. Um, he's a newish professor. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing great. How are you? Can't complain. Jeremy is obviously also here as well. Hello. Hey there, Jeremy. Hello. Hi, Joe. <laughs> so I guess to kick off the interview, we were just hoping to get a little bit of your background, where you're from, uh, where you did your degrees, and how you got to UMBC. All right. Um, so I grew up in the wilds of southern Ontario. Um, it wasn't really wild. It was like a farm <laughs> just outside Hamilton. And uh, it was a hobby farm. We had like a horse and not much else. But I did my undergrad degrees at uh, McMaster University, um, hometown school there. And I did an exchange year in Calgary. Uh, and that kind of started my progression westwards. So I went out and did a master's at the University of Calgary, and then I did a PhD at the University of British Columbia. <laughs> and the first time I came to Prince George was to visit my sister, who had uh, had come here for the Northern Residency Program. She's a talk in town. Uh, but then I came back to do some postdoc work uh, at UNBC in 2010. Um, made another big jump westward across the Pacific and wound up in Nepal for four years during research. And then I came back to UNBC in 20. 18 January to start uh, this career as a professor. Cool. Great. And, um, and so, yeah, you've been a professor here at UMBC for two years now, and um, you're developing a new lab group um, through that process, I believe. So you're part of the, are you the principal investigator on the Mountain Snow Hydrology Lab? Is that correct? I am. That's all my uh, invention. So... <laughs> Uh, I, I was trying to come up with a good acronym and the Mosh Lab seemed to work out really well. So uh, yeah. uh, combine my, my old interests in Weezer and Pearl Jam and things like that. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, so uh, one of the things you do as a researcher is uh, try and develop a research program and you apply for funding from the big funding agencies like NSERC. Um, and it's, it was just useful to have sort of a central theme that tied all your stuff together. A lot of my work has been in the mountains and so I sort of brought this all back together and said, well, let's, let's fo focus on the snow and let's focus on the mountains. Um, and then it just jumped out at me that this should be called the Mosh Lab. So cool. There and, is. Uh, where on your arc of um, academic pursuits did you land in kind of water resources, snow and ice, um, the general realm of the water cycle? Was that kind of an interest right off the get go from the bachelor's degree? Or did you find your way to that? other means 
No, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've always been a bit of a geography nerd, if there is such a thing. Like, I've loved maps and I've loved being outside as well as a big part of it. Um, the field work really, um, really is one of the best parts of the job. Um, sadly, yeah. and when you're in a bit more of a management role, you don't get to do it as much. But mm -hmm. um, in my, like, the reason I did a master's was because I could go skiing all the time and do research. It was amazing. Cool. Um, and... Yeah, so the the settling on snow and hydrology, um, it just speaks to kind of the need for this research as well. I think, you know, in BC, we don't know a lot about the snowpacks, even though it covers the entire province for, you know, four months of the year. And it's really important for um, water resources in a lot of different places. Like, yeah. we're, we're making progress. There's There's been lots of other researchers starting to come in and, and do this work, but I think there's still a huge amount of unknowns. And so it's trying to sort of quantify some of those unknowns. Yeah, absolutely. How big are the province's water towers, so to speak? Yeah, and they're massive. I mean, like if you look at the snowpacks in the Southern Coast Ranges, it, that, it's a huge water source. Um, and a lot of it just runs off directly into the oceans off the, the western side of the Coast Ranges. But mm -hmm. a lot of that water also flows into the interior. Um, you know, all the interior mountain ranges, um, the water that comes from snow and ice is really important for supplying agriculture, hydroelectricity, power generation, all these things. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And so is the work that you're going to, sorry, Jeremy, is the work you're going to be doing here with your students, are you guys measuring, like measuring snowpack and stuff using field data? And I know you also have interest in like remote sensing type of stuff. So is it kind of a blend of all this? Yeah. Um, sort of, it, it's a bit tough to do in a single master's project to combine like field work and remote sensing work. That'd be more yeah. focused on a PhD or a postdoc position, but um, w one of the things I'd love to do is actually get up um, and start up a mountain observatory. Um, it was actually it was a central idea in my big research proposal was to start one of these things at Vail Mount Glacier, the new resort that they're planning mm -hmm. out near Vail Mount. Yeah. But the hill is not being developed and they're still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen there. So I didn't put all my eggs in that basket. I thought that would be great. And you'd have this nice collaborative multidisciplinary platform where People can go and study snow or they can study avalanches or they can study glaciers or they can study, you know, alpine ecosystems. So um, we're reworking that. We're looking at a couple other options and uh, staying focused on both the fieldwork and the remote sensing, though, is, is really a big part here. I think we can inform a lot of the fieldwork we do with bigger scale remote sensing studies. Yeah. Um, now, <clears throat> I, I also ended up in this realm because of an interest in doing fieldwork. And I just have to ask, knowing that you've spent... Um, four years as a research scientist in the Himalayas. Um, did you have a set of touring skis with you there? And, and was there a lot of field work in that realm while you were there? Or was it more uh, remote sensing work primarily? There was field work. There was no skiing, though. Um, I did dry there, areas there. there I think. Well, so, okay, the Himalayas are really interesting. That part of the Himalayas, anyways, um, the winter season is dry season. And so mm. it, it almost doesn't rain or snow at all from November till February. So it's like, it's like barren. There's nothing. It's very clear. Right. Um, and it starts to snow in February. You just start to get these disturbances pushing in and you'll wind up with snow in the mountains. Uh, and people actually do go skiing sort of in March, but you have to hike up to 4,000 meters to start to reach the snow line. And then the skiing is all above that. So it's a really challenging effort. Type two fun. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um it's on the edge people do it though uh like if you're dedicated you can get some really fun skiing and however the field work is great i did lots of field work um we usually went out in april late april early may 
uh, and then again in October. So before and after the monsoon period when it just, you know, rains every day. So it's not yeah. so much fun yeah. to be out. Um, yeah, we would do two, three week field expeditions. It was great. And what was like the primary objective of the work out there that you were doing? Um, so I was working at a place called Isimod, which is the International Center for Integrated Mountain Development. And um, they're kind of a NGO development agency. Like they're not a development agency. They're an NGO, non-governmental organization. And they were trying to do, you know, cutting edge research to inform policy decisions and policy advice. So we were brought in or they, they were starting up a program to um, beef up uh, the observations of glaciers and the observations of high altitude meteorology uh, and also the high altitude hydrology. Uh, and to use that to help inform the country about what's going to happen in the future. So part of it was the the work and the research. The other part was training. And so we were actually working with students at the local, um, the Kathmandu University. They started a glaciology program dedicated to training students from Nepal in glaciology. And so uh, we would work with them on different student projects and advise them on their research. That's cool. Very yep. cool. cool. Yeah. Um, and then after that time, you went to the Cold Water Lab, if I'm not mistaken, in yes. um, Canmore, Alberta. Yeah, I forgot to mention the Cold Water Lab in my uh, little summary there. So after um, finishing up in Nepal, we did four years. I came back and wound up working with John Palmer's group at the Cold Water Lab in Canmore. Um, so I was kind of like the lab manager, and I was sort of informally supervising the students and some of the postdocs mm -hmm. were in the lab and, and working on them. And we still have, you know, two or three papers that are just kind of waiting to get finished and pushed out the door so um, cool. that, that was a great chance yeah to work there with Sean Pomeroy yeah right on and is he an ongoing collaborator with the Mosh lab uh not formally no but I mean we, we're just kind of waiting to see what projects are lining up I do work with his um uh mountain water futures program so mm. part of the big global water futures which is I can't remember how they describe it. it's the biggest university grant in the world or something it's massive um multiple institutions multiple partners um huge government support for this project and they've mm -hmm. got sort of spin-off projects called mountain water futures and uh there's groundwater studies and there's peat studies and there's all sorts of stuff happening under yeah. this big umbrella of water um and so yeah working with john sort of through these networks yeah very cool so you've uh so you've been around worked in many different uh parts of the planet it seems like and um you found yourself back in bc once again so um, are your research interests now that you're a professor here at UNBC primarily focused on BC-based problems? Or are you still keeping a, a you know, global um, site uh, research questions on the table? Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because great question. My, my son's out in the backyard and he's playing with the GoPro. He's trying to do some movie thing. And it just, <laughs> the camera just sort of stuck up in the window and it was hot looking at me. I, I see you. Um, okay. So I think my answer to that question would be the same before or after or during this pandemic, whatever we're in. I think, you know, because I'm back in BC and because there's so many unknowns, I don't need to go anywhere. There's, mm. there's lots of research I can do in my backyard, literally in my backyard. Um, and I think a focus on the issues that um, BC is going to face uh, going into the future when, with respect to climate change and mountain snowpacks, um, there's not a huge pressing need for me to go and do this in other places. That said, remote sensing gives you that opportunity to, to do that work. Um, you know, global scale remote sensing of snow. But yeah. this, this sort of stuff is, is now possible with sort of the processing power of 
Google Earth engine um, or, or big collab collaborative efforts where you get a whole bunch of people together to do this. So, um, but the field work part mainly is going to focus close to home because it's it's uh, it's a bit more cost efficient. Yeah. Certainly. And one like real quick thing, uh, I guess for people in the audience who we've talked to uh, another glacier person, but can you just give like a really brief synopsis of what remote sensing is for those that are totally not in this field? Yeah. So I, I teach this in my first year uh, physical geography class, and it's the it's the science and the art of <laughs> measuring something without touching it. Um, mm. So it's it's like, you know that that covers a broad spectrum but remote sensing is a lot about using the properties of electromagnetic radiation to sense things about the surface of the planet so we use it with our eyes and we see things we see in the, the visible spectrum red green and blue satellites do the same thing but they also measure in a whole bunch of other different wavelengths too and you can capture lots of different things about the surface not just the color of it so um that's remote sensing in a nutshell we use satellites we use uh remote sensing devices based on drones or based on airplanes, uh, depending on the scale that you want to cover. Cool. Um, one last question. We're, we're just about done our first set here, but um, just to tie up the question of who is Dr. Joe Shea, um, later in this interview, we're going to talk a lot about your music interests and pursuits. So would you mind just giving us a brief intro of um, what your interests are as a musician and how long you've been uh, producing music for? Ooh, um, so I kind of got, I mean, I, I played music as a kid. I took piano lessons and abandoned them because I hated practicing when I was seven mm. or eight. Uh, but I went back to it in high school. I asked my, my mom if I could take lessons again. She said, sure. So I went back to lessons and I retrained up through the grades and um, was proficient at the piano, but kind of, thought that there was better things to do, you know, like playing guitar was a much cooler thing to do than playing mm, piano. So rock and roll, yeah. picked up guitars and uh, played in university, like, you know, uh, open mics and stuff like that. And then in my master's, I was doing my master's work and I recorded an album in my living room and sort of self-produced my first EP. Cool. And I loved it. It was really fun. Like, but I, I haven't listened to it for a while. I don't think the songs are that great, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's around somewhere, you know, someone's got it. It's nice. Around. Um, and then I just sort of, I abandoned it again. I dropped music when I started my PhD. Life got pretty crazy with kids and uh, family and, and doing a PhD work. So um, that kind of disappeared. But then when I was in Nepal, I picked it up again and I found a, a band. We had like a bunch of expats like myself who were there in the country and uh, some friends who were uh, Nepalese playing guitar and the drums. And we had a great band. We did, we did really fun cover nights of whatever stuff we felt like doing. We did 80s nights and 90s nights. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. Anyways, and then I kept writing and playing when I got back. So um, I met my bandmate Ellen in Canmore, and we started writing songs together, and we produced our EP. Um, we just recorded the full-length album, which uh, you'll hear some tracks from coming up later in the show. Uh, but I'm also playing music here with uh, local singer-songwriter William Cookless. Uh, so we have a band called The Ebbs that are trying to figure out what to do now, uh, as everyone is. But uh, music is... It's definitely there. It's a big part. It's it's tough during the pandemic, but uh, yeah. it's always it's always there. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to uh, asking you a little bit more about that uh, later in the show. But uh, we're we're just in time for our first track here, so we're gonna take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back shortly to uh, hear a bit more about the Mosh Lab.
to CFUR 88.7 FM online at cfer.ca. Okay, welcome back to The Abstract. Today we are speaking with Dr. Joe Shea, and uh, we'd like to uh, dive into the MOSH lab a little bit and um, hear about some of the uh, specific projects that you might have in the pipeline and... um, Maybe just dive in a little bit more about uh, what mountain snow hydrology research looks like. Well, that's a very uh, broad question. That uh... okay. <laughs> so um, yeah. Okay, uh, why don't I start with the? I mean, one of the overarching objectives, I guess, is to just better understand mountain snowpacks, how they accumulate, how they um, melt away in the summertime, what these rates are. Um, what the patterns are of snowpacks in the mountains across, you know, Western Canada, uh, in terms of accumulation mm-hmm. amounts, we, we kind of know broadly what they are, but can we, can we really narrow this down and, and do a better job at understanding how much snow is in the mountains, how much water that contributes uh, to stream flow, uh, and what particularly what changes in future climate would mean for mountain snowpacks. So that's the broad envelope, I guess. Um, and yeah. right now, ongoing projects, um, there's a couple interesting ones. Uh, one is called the SWEEP program, the Snow Water Equivalence Estimation and Prediction, I think the acronym stands for. We love, we love <laughs> our acronyms around here. That's the, the SWEEP oh, program. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually with BC Hydro. You start with a mosh. Exactly. You got to clean things up after. Uh, <laughs> so, this is, so when we talk about snow, we want to know how much water is in the snowpack. It's not just about the depth. Um, and you know, we call this the snow water equivalence. If you melted it all down, how much water would you have left at the end? And that's really important for rivers. And it's, uh, it's a really important quantity that's really hard to measure though. Um, there's, there's automatic stations you can put out to do this, but they're really big and expensive. Um, there's some really cool new stuff coming online um, to measure snowpacks that we're gonna start experimenting with, hopefully, if we get funding to do it. But ongoing projects, the SWEET program particularly looks at LIDAR data. So this is a program with Brian Manunos, um, who's been collecting LIDAR data for sort of six or seven years now in Western Canada. 
Um, and in particular, it's partnered with BC Hydro to look at one of their basins specifically and to look at how much water is in the basin. Can we measure that with LIDAR? Uh, we can't. We can measure how much the depth of snow is with LIDAR, but we have to convert that into a water estimate somehow. Um, so students are working on these sorts of problems. How do you estimate snow density when you don't have any information on the ground? What's your best guess? You know, what's the error bars on how much water is in that basin, depending on which sort of density model you use? So Sergio uh, is working right. on that. And Sarah is the other master's student on the program now working on sort of a remote sensing approach to it. So she's using uh, satellite data from a bunch of different platforms to look at snow covered area and how that changes with time and try and track that with the mapped snow depths and the total snow volume in the basin. So it's a data fusion okay. is the sort of buzzword that we're using here, but it's really to combine yeah. multiple sources of data to get the best picture we can of the snowpack. And she's actually got some really cool stuff. I'm yeah. gonna get her to do a, a, a MOSH blog post. I had to come up with an acronym for it, but I don't yet. The MOSH, <laughs> Mosh Pit cool. blog. Mosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but she's going to sort of put out some of her stuff, like uh, some quick looks at what she's looking at. Um, and then a postdoc is joining the team from Montreal, uh, Anna Chesnikova, and she's going to come and work specifically on the modeling part with BC Hydro. The whole idea is to improve their uh, water forecasts. So how can we reduce the uncertainty in the forecasts as we go into the summertime um, using LIDAR data and remote sensing right. data? So, and I guess that informs the way that they manage their absolutely yeah um it's you know from them it's it's an economical perspective um and also you know do we have to shed water now or we how much water are we going to expect later in the summer how much reservoir volume do we have now it's a bit of an optimization problem uh, you want to keep it because it's worth a lot of money if you just generate electricity all the time in the summer but sometimes you have to spill it beforehand so it doesn't get to be too much so yeah yeah um and so You've got some LIDAR data-based um, projects going on. And um, I guess for those listeners that aren't familiar with LIDAR, our first episode <laughs> does dive fairly deep into it with Ben Pelto. <laughs> um, but using uh, using aerial-based laser, laser scanners. Laser planes. It's laser planes, yeah. So yeah. lasers laser from planes. space. And it's really cool. I mean, you like if Ben talked about it, I don't need to explain too much, but... You shoot lasers from space and you measure how long it takes to come back and that tells you the distance between the plane and the ground so if you do that when there's no snow you cool. get what we call a bare earth dem so you can actually remove the vegetation mm -hmm. too because the lasers can penetrate canopies and stuff it's amazing and then you go back out in the middle of winter and do it and you have a new uh height of the surface because you've got snow on top and you just subtract the two and you map snow depths over your entire basin so there's right, there's cool. other things in there but that's the basic idea <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then, um, so in addition to the LiDAR, you said that Sarah is doing a project looking at other remote sensing prod, uh, products. So would that be just using like satellite imagery or using multiple satellite data bands to map snow? So she's using um, the optical data, which is like your red, green, blue, to, to, to map out the area of snow cover from a bunch of different satellites like Landsat and Sentinel. So you get it's like combining these different products to get the best sort of estimate of what the snow covered area is through time. But she's also using mm -hmm. radar space-based radar data. So synthetic aperture okay. radar, um, which just measures in a different frequency. It's, it's an active remote sensing. So again, it sends out a signal and measures the return. And from that, you can actually determine when snow is wet or dry. So it doesn't tell you much about Whoa. the depth <laughs> until you can play around with it, but that's another story. Um, you can actually okay. estimate whether it's wet or dry snow. So it's not only mapping the total snow covered area, but it's mapping 
sort of this wedding front that moves up through the mountains as the melt season progresses, right? How much of your basin is ready to melt is kind of that question that she's looking at. Okay, very yeah. interesting. And um, so, so I guess then it's not really a direct measurement of the snow water equivalent, but you're saying it's more of a timing tool. At this point, yeah, there are studies using the synthetic aperture radar for, for actually getting at snow volumes, like the water equivalents. But the problem with radar is that as soon as your snow is wet, it just bounces right back. You don't actually penetrate it all, so you can't tell how deep it is. And if you know snowpacks in right. Western Canada, you know, they're, they're dry until sort of February-ish, and then everything is kind of wet after that because you get a nice warm patch of weather and things start to melt. And so then the radar just tells you that yeah. it's wet. That's it. You don't get any penetration into the snowpack. Cool. Yeah. yeah so one other thing that Jeremy and I uh, noticed when we were just like kind of sleuthing around your background is that you have been using drones for, it seems like quite a while, which I think people in the audience might be interested to hear just a little bit about how you guys have incorporated drones in your in your research project? Sure. Um, so that was just sort of a fortunate series of events. I wound up in Nepal and uh, one of the researchers who was collaborating with the organization I worked at was Walter Immerzeel, who's a, a great Dutch um, mountain scientist, <clears throat> also does a lot of hydrology, remote sensing studies, and he had a big plan to go in and bring drones into the Himalayas to map how these glaciers are changing at really fine scale. So it's kind of the same idea as the LIDAR, where you measure things yeah. twice, but now you're just looking at um, using drones to collect overlapping photos. And it's this really ancient principle of photogrammetry. If you look at the same thing from two different positions, you can reconstruct its depth. Um, so you're just looking at above with a camera, uh, but if you measure it from a bunch of different places, you can actually reconstruct the elevation. And if you do that repeatedly, you can measure how surfaces are changing through time, which is a great way of measuring glaciers. Yeah. So you get really mm -hmm. fine detail. Um, it's it's almost too much information sometimes, but that that approach has now really uh, been useful for looking at how these big glaciers in the Himalayas that are totally covered with debris are changing. So some some of them are just buried in rock. You can't even tell that there's ice walking on it, but but they are changing and actually pretty rapidly. So the drones are helping us discover that. Yep. Cool. And um, and you've been working with drones for quite a while. So and they've been you know, evolving very rapidly. So, I mean, how much change over the course of your career have you seen in the use of drones as a research instrument? And do you see them becoming a part of a standard tool set for this kind of investigation? Um, they have changed a lot. And in, even when I started uh, using them, we were at the point where it was, you know, autopilot systems and everything was sort of controlled. It wasn't manual flight at all. Um, you go back 20 years and that's what people were doing with gas powered helicopters and things. And it was kind of crazy. Uh, but the new, yeah. this latest generation now, the last sort of, let's say seven or 10 years, um, things have really changed and the technologies are really great. The, the, the planes are stable. They can fly longer. Um, in terms of doing science with them, I think we've kind of hit some limits, like they're really useful for very specific purposes. And I tell, when I tell students mm -hmm. about drone work, it's, it's not a magic bullet for anything, right? Like it's, um, it, it's a tool that you can use if you want to do really detailed site investigations on specific properties. But again, the cost can right. be prohibitive. If you want to get different sensors, it can cost a lot. Um, and there's, there used to be a lot more regulations about flying that's sort of been now changed again with the latest version of Transport Canada's navigation rules. So 
Um, I need to brush up on those and make sure I requalify for my drone pilot license before I go do research. But um, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's it, it was an obstacle before. Was that it just was really just difficult to get permits to do flights. So um, that kind of limited their usability. However, I would say if anyone is like doing, you know, in terms of industrial practices, these are these are really useful. So site surveys, um, small stand surveys, you want to look at infrastructure, you want to look at that dam, you want to look at that bridge, bring it a drone. It's a really easy way to map things. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, and so we've talked about three scales, I guess, of aerial observations here with satellite imagery, plane-based imagery, and now drones. Um, is your research group actively collecting point data then um, with MET stations or doing snow survey? That's a great question. Is that a leading Um, question? That seems like a, um, so uh, at the moment, no, but I have another master's student who's planning to go and do field work in the Bugaboos this summer. Um, And he's got actually a a really interesting project which links kind of mountain snowpacks with how much heat the ground is absorbing and the the thermal regime of bedrock in the Alpine. So, Mm. Uh, the idea here is, is actually, it's pretty cool that, that, you know, if you dump a snowpack on a bedrock in the, in the wintertime until it melts, until that snowpack disappears, there's no heat being absorbed by the bedrock. So the longer it's exposed for the more Mm. heat it can soak up in the summertime and then release back to the snowpack in the winter. And this can be a big contributor to sort of, I mean, if anyone who's dug a pit in the Alpine knows that if you get down to the bottom, the snowpack temperatures are right around zero. So there's energy coming from the bedrock into the base of the snowpack, which can account for a lot of the energy in midwinter um, until the sun starts getting stronger again. So his idea is to look at how that heat content changes with elevation and with snow depth. Um, so, yeah, so it'll be a one-year study doing a lot of these point measurements. He's got weather stations and a bunch of uh, little tiny boreholes he's going to drill into the bedrock and stick in some sensors. Cool. Uh, very cool. And presumably that research could have implications for understanding how, when the snow onset date happens, how, how early in a year can snow start accumulating if bedrock is starting to heat up more than it has historically? Yeah, I mean, we tried to pitch uh, it as like this unknown feedback in climate change, but I'm not totally convinced that that's the case anymore because it really depends on the timing of your first snowfall. So if you get, a, if you get an early mm-hmm. season, like an early dump in the fall, it insulates the ground. But if you don't get that dump, you'll lose all that heat to the atmosphere. So it's a kind of a weird, yeah. it, could, it could actually be a totally reverse feedback than what I think it is. So I, th- I think it'll be really interesting to get some of Kevin's results. Yeah. Very cool. I guess yeah. I have one last question before we take our next break. Um, and it's a bit of a switching gears, but uh, we we know that you're like quite active on Twitter. And a lot of it, uh, a lot of the, the Twitter stuff, though, is is kind of science communication. So I just, we, we talked to Zoe Miletis a little while ago and she's kind of in the, she kind of does the same thing, really tries to get stuff out there via Twitter. So I guess if you could just talk very briefly about like why you think some of the science comm stuff is really important and why like Twitter or other or methods are, are useful tools. Uh, I mean, part of it is it, it's our duty, right? Like we, we do science and it's not enough to just publish a paper and let it sit in a journal somewhere. I think if we're doing stuff that's interesting and relevant to people, then people should be somehow made aware of this cool work we're doing. And I think, you know, what I do on Twitter isn't, you know, even half of what I should be doing. If I was dedicated to the SciComm stuff, you'd, you'd spend a lot of time 
doing a, a range of different communication activities related to the papers that you're publishing. It's, I mean, it's a completely unmanageable model for an academic to do that. But uh, I think it's really useful. I, I have a great community of scientists on Twitter that I follow that follow me. Um, and there's, you know, there's opportunities for students that show up on Twitter that I don't see anywhere else. There's new papers that show up on Twitter that I don't see anywhere else. Um, when I was a grad student, like dating myself now, I used to go to the library and pull out stacks of books and photocopy them and see other papers at the same time. And I was like, oh, that's a cool paper. That's, I, di I didn't know that existed. And I don't, I don't get that when I search, you know, library catalogs or sometimes Google Scholar, I can do it when I, you know, start diving into stuff. But Twitter is a great way to see new papers and cool research. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I'm there. And, and I think, you know, it would be really good for people to, it's such an echo chamber. So I don't, I don't know how much is getting out there, but it, it sounds like, you know, it's a good yeah. opportunity to communicate your science. And it's a really, I think well, the, one of the things that I, the reason that this came to mind is when you were talking about the snowpack or the snow water equivalency stuff. And I think you did a series, like a, a threaded tweet about that. And as someone who has no, I don't have necessarily a use for snow water equivalency data, but it was like, oh, this is like this starting to make sense in a really succinct, easy way. Yeah. And that's part of it, right? Like if you can't explain the science in a way that people can understand, then uh, you should maybe rethink about what you're doing. Like, it, and not that, not that all science is reducible to that level, but I still think it's really important to try and communicate to people in general what you're doing and why it's interesting. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm a bit worried that I'm gonna have to get into TikTok and all this stuff. I don't know how to do. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. So. <laughs> well, you have a mosh lab. You can Make start having mosh pits. I can the gifts I yeah, can handle. I don't yeah. know how to do a yeah. Anyways. <laughs> um. Well, and it certainly seems like um, like you guys have a great website for the Mosh Lab, and uh, you mentioned getting Sarah to potentially do a blog post about her work. And so it seems like you do have an avenue for science communications built into your, your lab infrastructure itself, so to speak. Um, but uh, just one last question before we dive into the break um, about Mosh itself. Um, if it is about two years old now, um, you're, you've kind of started to set some roots in um, UNBC uh, community now. Where do you see Mosh Lab progressing over the next two to five years? And uh, what do you hope to develop over there? Well, uh, I'd expect to see some results coming in. I think right now it's still like all these <laughs> projects that are planned or like I put up some of the previous work I've done to sort of, you know, flush out the website a little bit. I'm impressed you think it's good because I think it's could still use a lot of work. And the thing, again, this comes back to science <laughs> communication. Um, in the same way it is with music, you just need to keep doing it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly to grow an audience. It's not enough to just put out one mm -hmm. blog post every six months and no one's going to follow it and no one's going to do it. So the Mosh Lab site, yeah. the idea is that me and the students and my collaborators can start to just generate these sort of public communication pieces and uh, talk about what we're doing. So the Mosh Lab in, in five years and 10 years, I, I hope that we've continued to grow. We've put out... Um, interesting papers and we've built big collaborations with other groups doing similar work. I know there's a group in University of Washington that has a similar sort of approach. Um, there's, there's people in the southern, uh, in the mountains and the states that do similar work and also overseas and, and sort of build these global collaborations that I already have uh, and uh, make the Mosh Lab sort of a focal point for that in, in British Columbia. So that'd be great. Lots of students, lots of work, lots of fun research. Uh, and, and ideally it's a big sort of fun Mosh pit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, great. Awesome. Well, uh, I think it's about time for another uh, track here. So um, we'll be back 
um, for the last set of questions to hear about uh, the music and life side of Dr. Awesome. Thanks. Stampede. 
You're listening to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM and online on your favorite podcaster at anchor.fm. Welcome back to The Abstract. If you're just tuning in, we're talking today to Dr. Joe Shea, and we've covered a lot of the the cool science that you're doing, mountain stuff, but we're going to switch gears for this last segment and talk about music. I think anybody who's been to any of the places in PG where there's live music has probably seen you play in one of your one of your groups, either the Ebbs or Trundled or just solo. So can you just talk a little bit, um, we talked a little bit about how you got into music, but like why you think music is so important and why you've decided to make it one of the priorities in your life? Um, it's a great question and it's, it's a tough one to answer in a sort of a short soundbite. I, but I think, you know, being creative is not just confined to being a creative scientist. Um, and I think when you, uh, when you just dive in and focus on science, sometimes it's more like this process of doing something that, that some, sometimes doesn't have a nice tangible benefit. Like publishing a paper doesn't have the same feel as, you know, finishing a song and, and putting out a, a single and, and playing music. And, that, and that's a big part of it for me, like to play live music. And this is why the pandemic is really tough. Um, to play live music is, is the best part about it. I, I love playing music. I love that you disappear, right? You're sort of in this completely different zone and you're connected with the people you're playing with and you can feel connections with the audience if you're, if you're doing it right um, or if they're in the right mood, sometimes you're not. Um, but that's, music is a big part of that. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's been a part of who I have become over the last sort of 10, 15 years, music's there. Um, music's always been in my background. I have some horrible things I used to listen to as a kid, but, uh, some, some good musical influences as well. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's, it, music's great. It's a wonderful form of art and that's why it's, it's part of what, what I do. And, and do you find that it's kind of, um, I mean, you said that you've kind of come in and out of, of pursuing music through your career. Um, but now that you're kind of, um, you know, you're, you're in a tenure track position, I guess, now. And, and like, it seems like a really stressful gig trying to become a tenured professor, if I'm just being <laughs> honest about it. So do you find that it serves another function for you personally just to, you know, decompress and uh, change tracks every once in a while? Absolutely. I mean, it's the stress release valve, right? Um, th- there is a lot of stress in a tenure track position. There's so many things, you know, I can't even count the things on one 10, how many fingers do I have? 10 that I did this morning, <laughs> like 10 different separate tasks related to students or related to grad admissions related to, there's just so many things that you're juggling all the time. Mm-hmm. So music is that chance to just focus on one thing, right? And, and your brain kind of just hits this other, uh, you're on a different wavelength and you're just thinking about the music and thinking about putting that out. So it's, it's tough to get there. And that, that's the other hard thing about this pandemic is that I haven't found that space to, to get to that point, partly because I'm not playing in front of people. Um, but even in my own practice, I just, I just, the headspace is not there right now. So I'm looking forward to getting that back at mm-hmm. some point. Well, and certainly from uh, our internet sleuthing again, <laughs> you've been, uh, you've been, Finding a way around it, hey! Uh, I, I seem to have seen some uh, driveway jams, and uh, your—I think it was going to be your original album release. You were doing a live show that was then translated to a Zoom show. 
Yeah, uh, so with the the Ebbs is my local band with William Cookless and Finn Scott Neff, who's a, a undergrad student here in forestry. Um, we had shows booked right at the start of the pandemic in sort of mid-March, and we actually canceled. We were, we were supposed to play Trench. It was like, we love playing a Trench. We get a lot of people, and it's a big crowd, and it's a lot of energy, and it's really fun. Mm -hmm. uh, but we just felt like that was the wrong time to do it. Um, even before things shut down, I think this was the weekend before March break, we said, look, we're just going to flip it to a Facebook Live and experimented with that. It wasn't as much fun. I mean, I have fun playing with the guys, but it's not the same, right? Yeah. There's something about that live audience feel um, that and, really makes it as a musician. And I'm sure it does create a very different vibe, kind of inviting the internet world into the uh, the basement jam studio or whatever your normal place is. Yeah, and you, and you know the quality is not as good. And I don't know about you, but I'm not, I can't sit and watch Facebook Live events. Like they're just, unless they're good, they're well done. Like sometimes you get professional audio and video is really good and it's, uh, it's a good feed, but sitting on someone's Facebook feed just doesn't, it just doesn't help me at all. Yeah. So I just don't do it. Yeah. And who would you say, like, uh, the the two bands that you play in have fairly different styles of music. So what, like, who who do you listen to or who did you listen to to kind of get, kind of find your own sound, I guess? Um, you'll hear it in the tracks. Radiohead was a big influence for me. Um, I've, I've listened to them since whenever that first album came out, 93. Three, Pablo Honey, when was that? 91, even earlier? Like, long time. Favorite band right for, forever. And they just do really interesting things all the yeah. time. Yeah. And it, it's not like I'm, I can't do Radiohead, but I, I really like their sound and that influence sort of pops in once in a while. Um, I listened to a lot of Canadian music when I was growing up, so a lot of Tragically Hip, a lot of that sort of Canadian rock scene, I guess. Uh, I, I kind of got into, like, Motley Crue and some things that were a bit weird, but uh, <laughs> we backed off of that. Um, what do I like? Songwriters, like Josh Ritter. Jason Isbell. Um, let's see. Um, Ferris and Jason Romero, a bit more on the sort oh, of yeah. country folk so side. Yes. Beautiful. And so that yeah. sort of bleeds into this, the singer songwriter stuff I do um, with my band Trundled with Ellen. Um, and with Willie, it's a bit more of a high energy kind of output. Like we're, we're channeling, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's something um, we just have a lot of fun playing a higher energy set. Whereas it, sometimes with, with Ellen, it's like, getting people to listen is the goal, right? Like you sort of, you want to hear that pin drop in the room sometimes when we're playing. And when we get that, it's really, uh, it's a magical thing, so. And so is this the first, uh, the album that you guys are, were set to release, I guess, this week and has maybe now been shifted. Is that kind of the first album where you went, because you went to Nova Scotia to have it done in like a big proper studio, I think? Yeah, so the High Water album, it's still going to, technically be released this weekend or I think I can't remember when the date is um, on Bandcamp. It's a soft launch we're calling it. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a sort of full promotion release later in the fall um, because of the pandemic. Like we were going to put it out. We were going to be touring this summer, playing folk festivals like, you know, uh, here and there and, and just sort of making it work that way. Um, and the album was recorded in a full studio um, with a producer and recorder, Dan Ledwell, um, who's East Coast Music Award winner um, Canadian Music Award winner for his production work. And we had a lot of fun, 10 days in the studio with Dan. And, it, and again, that was a great time for just creativity. Um, you know, things just started to, to roll once you get into the studio. And it's, it's funny, you write a song on a guitar or on a piano and you play it with your, your bandmate and you, you hit this point where you're like, I like this song, we're going to do this. And then you get into the studio and you're like, well, we can add this. And what do you hear? Like, we would just sit there and listen to the bed track. And yeah. go, I can hear this. What do you, what do you hear? I hear, I hear that. 
and then we sort of talk about it and then just do it. And Dan was great about helping us with those ideas and, and bringing his own to the table. So yeah, it's a fully produced full studio album. And I, cool. I really, I really love the album. I listen to it a lot actually, which is maybe a bit weird, but I don't know. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That kind of makes me ask one question is um, presumably if you're doing a, a studio album, you're paying for recording time. So how do you balance um, taking the time to kind of explore the music that you're trying to produce while also, you know, maybe trying to ignore the voice in the back of your head that's saying like, oh, by the hour? <laughs> well, that's what rates, da uh, yeah. Dan was there for. Like we, we knew we were going out there. We, we actually did a Kickstarter to fund a lot of that album. Cool. Um, so people bought advanced copies or they bought swag and they, you know, we, we just took donations from people for that. Um, and they all got their album copies, I think, by now. So we sent out all the rewards to people for supporting the album. Um, but yeah, you're in the studio and you know there's a time, there's a clock ticking. But Dan was great. He's like, well, you know, let's get it to the point where we think it's done. And if there's time afterwards, we can go back. And But it's more, it's it's almost in the moment. Like, it's amazing to think about a mm -hmm. record as it's it just captures a week-long period where people spent a lot of time working on something. Yeah, yeah. And it's done. And then it's set. You can't fix it again. You can't go back and change things because that's the album. And that recorded a moment in time. It's like a snapshot, yeah. a musical snapshot. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's kind of like other art projects or even science projects where you, you do just logistically have to say it's done at some point. It's like a thesis. Yeah. Just <laughs> like a thesis. Eh? <laughs> Hopefully a bit more fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I, it was, it was an amazing, like just, it was a great opportunity to go and do that. And so it was a, it was a good break for me from, from schoolwork and, and writing papers and stuff. Yeah. And uh, your uh, writing partner and musical partner in Trundled, what is uh, like, how did you get to know Ellen and, and what's, we we first met in Calgary actually when I was doing my masters. Um, I was part of this. I was the president of the Busking for Smiles Club, which is a various <laughs> oh, nice. camp, campus club, and we would just sort of set up randomly, be like Friday at noon, show up at the courtyard and play your guitar. So we would do that every once in a while. And but we also did singer songwriter nights. Uh, we'd do open mics at the student pub, and we would do we would rent out the really nice recital hall. Uh, and have people submit their songs to to come and play, you know, one or two songs for a full audience. We'd bring in all their friends and family and have a lot of fun doing that. So anyways, I met Ellen sort of through that group. Uh, and then we reconnected when I, I moved to the Bow Valley to work at the Coldwater Lab. So Cool. Right on. Yep. And I guess I have to ask one more question. Uh, a friend of mine said that she saw you play a show in a cave. Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> I did play a show in a cave. Like, I, what? Played, I played two shows in a cave. So um, <laughs> there is a cave uh, tour operation in Canmore called um, Canmore Cave and Tours, I think. And they have sort of exclusive access to the Rat's Nest Cave, which is just outside Canmore. It's all gated off. Um, and they've been exploring the cave and mapping it and then taking in guided tours. And they kind of realized a couple years ago that they could actually, there's a big, cavern that opens up at one point and you can actually fit you know 15 or 20 people in there big ceilings and a great sound yes. and they brought people in to play music and they've done a bunch of things they've done a choir in there they've done someone brought a cello in which is insane cool. i would have loved to be there for that but they do now or they were um a sort of an annual series at christmas time called spirit in the mountain and they bring uh, 20 people down and they bring a band down just before who sets up and gets ready to play and they play 45 minute set in the cave cool that's cool really fun no yeah. better reverb i guess eh? you know it's it's <laughs> almost too much like it, it when you're there in person it's great like it sounds amazing and i love playing in the cave but we tried to take some recordings of it and it's 
it's really hard to get that sound done properly. Yeah. yeah. Like, in terms of like an audio engineering thing, I would love to have someone who's really good at it come in and say, well, you need mics here and here and here. But there's a lot of reverb. If you're measuring in the wrong spot, it's almost too far away. It's just like this huh. sort of, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a beautiful place to play. Yeah, that's cool. Cool. Well, I think that's uh, probably all the time we have for the show today. But uh, for those listening, check out High Water from Trundled. And uh, be looking forward to the uh, official release uh, later in the fall, I guess you mentioned. And um, yeah, really looking forward to see what comes out of uh, the Mosh Lab in the, uh, in the coming time. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks. Just listen to Drive, which is the second song on Joe's recent album from Trundled. And with that marks the end of the first season of The Abstract. 
But never fear, Kristen and I will be back in the fall. Thank you so much for tuning in, and see you next time. You've been listening to CFUR 88.7 FM from UNBC in beautiful Prince George.